0: Martha Stewart here. As a devoted pet parent and culinary expert, I ensure my cats and dogs are fed the finest nutrition. My premium pet food features air-dried protein inclusion, whole fruits and vegetables, and never any fillers. Martha Stewart Pet Food Formulas make it so easy to satisfy the dietary needs and taste preferences of your pets. Now all six delicious formulas are 50% off. And there's convenient home delivery on Chewy.com. No more lugging heavy bags and your pets will thrive on the optimal nutrition and great taste.
1: When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family... Look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store,
2: or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com, we've done your homework.
3: One of the most important things that I've always believed in was you have to take risks. I think if you're not willing to take risks, there's no rewards.
0: Hello, everyone. I'm recording today at Samsung's flagship retail location, Samsung 837 with my guest, Jeffrey Loria. I've known Jeffrey for many years. In fact, uh, I met him 18 years ago at the armory on Park Avenue in New York City, where there was a very large uh, New York art show.
3: And it's been on for years.
0: <laughs> it's been on for years. And I uh, was feeling good that night. And I was walking by One of my favorite sculptures of all time. Did I ever tell you the story about why I love that sculpture so much? No. It is Myol's La Riviere, which was made in about 1931. And when I was a college student at Barnard College, I would spend my Tuesday evenings uh, at the Museum of Modern Art, and I would listen to music. They had a music, music at night, every Tuesday night in the summer times, And I would rest my arm or my head on the leg of La Riviere, which was um, a beautiful sculpture in the pool in the garden of the Museum of Modern Art on 53rd Street. And I always said to myself, if I could ever buy a sculpture, I would buy La Riviere. And then I saw a casting of it at the armory, and Jeffrey was the dealer, and we made a deal.
3: And we made a friendship.
0: And we made a friendship. And uh, thank you very much for that because I have enjoyed her so much. She's one of the most beautiful, beautiful female sculptures I've ever seen. And you have one too, I hear, in your garden. Yeah, I
3: have one at the end of a swimming pool. She exists to lie down next to a, a body of water. and
0: Although in the in Tuileries, she's on a pedestal.
3: Well, they don't have any water there. That's
0: right. no <laughs> No pond right there. And in my garden, she's actually resting in a... A beautiful um, mossy garden surrounded by low shrubs, but she's beautiful. And you look down on her, which is which is a nice way to look at her. Well, from- S- sculpture
3: is meant to be seen in many places, yes. and many viewpoints. And so it can be in a garden, it can be in, near a pool, it can be up on a pedestal, high up on a pedestal, but you try to make eye-to-eye contact with it.
0: But see, we're getting off track here talking about one specific sculpture. When I really want to introduce you to Jeffrey Loria, I've uh, known him through his two driving passions: baseball and art. He began as a highly successful dealer in the art world of the 1960s, and as private collecting grew into the enormous business that it has become today, in 1989. Jeffrey began to pursue the penultimate dream for any true baseball fan to be the owner of a professional baseball team. So he eventually became the owner of the Montreal Expos and then later the Miami Marlins. Jeffrey has just published a book filled with stories and insights from his two fascinating careers. It's titled From the Front Row, Reflections of a Major League Baseball Owner and a Modern Art Dealer. Welcome, Jeffrey, to my podcast. Thank you. And uh, I love your book. It is really informative. And it is also uh, kind of a great big fat book full of good advice for anybody in business, anybody thinking about business. When you examine somebody's career, like a career like yours, which has been so phenomenally successful, it's really nice to know the backstories. And this book is so full of stories. You have lived an extremely full life.
3: I feel very fortunate, Martha, to have been part of two worlds, the baseball world, which came in the late 80s when I bought a minor league team to see if I liked the industry and then eventually the major league club in the late 90s. And having started in the early 60s in the art world, I guess I can say I came of age at the right time. I decided to put it all together. And when I sold the team in 2017, decided that I'd had some great experiences. That I would like to share, and hence the the book. The book. Um,
0: now, this book is available on Amazon, Amazon, okay,
3: and bookstores soon.
0: Yeah, from the front row, published by Post Hill Press. Right. Loria is the last name of Jeffrey Loria. It is a very interesting book, and it has some very interesting illustrations, uh, fabulous pictures. Uh, you did a great job. The
3: book is divided in both. The art world and the baseball world, but it you can seems see they the seats. seem
0: so foreign. It's not, but it's not, is it? No, as you say, the baseball player is so much like an artist. Give
3: I, them. I, Martha, I always felt equally comfortable in an artist's studio as I did on a baseball field or in a clubhouse. They sort of, I mean, I could be watching a baseball game in Miami. And learn about some work of art and have to excuse myself for two minutes, but both worlds came together very well for me. You know, they both produce a lot of magic, a lot of drama and a lot of excitement. And that's, that's what life is about.
0: You had the, that intuition of, of focusing on two giant businesses that are fun. Art is fun and baseball is really fun. I've been a baseball fan forever. I don't. I don't know if you know that. I babysat for Gil McDougall's kids, Yogi Berra's kids. Uh, we were all young, young high school girls in Nutley, New Jersey, and they lived in Teaneck, right across the river from Yankee Stadium. And we would, and we were so trustworthy of these uh, this gang of girls from Nutley that we were always invited to babysit for the baseball players.
3: Gil McDougall was one of my heroes growing oh, up. I
0: didn't know that. Oh. And-
3: and I knew exactly where he lived on, I think, Leroy Street in Teaneck.
0: Teaneck or Tenafly. Yeah, Tenafly, yeah, right up there. Oh, and he was so charming. His wife was so nice. The kids were great. And um, and he, I have a signed baseball card from Gil McDougal. I wonder what that's worth these days. Probably well, not as much as the Mickey Mantle card, which I do not have. I gave that one away. <laughs> But yeah. but I love those I love those guys. They were really fun. And Yogi Berra, he actually remember his. He didn't remember that I babysat for his kids, but his wife did. I I I've, I've spent lots of time in the Yankee box with Yogi Berra and his wife at Yankee Stadium. So I tell up, me why. why I grew why? I
3: grew up in Yankee Stadium.
0: You did. So where did you grow up? Where were you born?
3: I was born in Manhattan, in New York City. Went to public school here in New York. Played baseball at Stuyvesant High School, and. Started going up to Yankee Stadium to chase my eventual dream um, when I was probably 10 years old, when it was easy to get on a subway. So was it a dream to play baseball or? Well, it was both. It was first the dream to play the game and to play it well. And then to, you know, be around these players. What did you play? I played second base. I didn't have my growth spurt till I got to Yale. And so I was an infielder. And going up to Yankee Stadium looking for autographs at an early age when I was, as I said, 10 or 11.
0: Did you ever catch a fly fly ball?
3: (laughs) There's this funny story with that. Yeah, I never caught a ball, either fair, foul, or in batting practice. (laughs) But one day when I was in Miami with the Marlins, Barry Bonds came over to me and we started chatting. And he told me that he had a son who wanted to go to Yale. What did I think of the school? Of course, I could say nothing but great things and then i said to him you know I-, I never caught a foul ball even in batting practice or any other time during the game in the first inning he came to bat and the first pitch he hit was straight up and it was right over my head
0: wow and
3: i could see it coming down and giving me a good shot on the head so i put myself right under the the eve of the of the dugout and it hit the eve of the dugout and barry was standing at home plate laughing at me he yelled over you said you never caught a foul ball, <laughs> and you hit from this one. I said, Barry, there's no way you can control a bat to hit it right here at that moment.
0: He was joking. Of course he was joking.
3: Uh, he was joking sure. But, it but was, did you get the ball? Uh, no. No. Somebody, <laughs> else, somebody else jumped in and took the ball.
0: I'm always amazed when people catch them. But by the time they get into the stands, they're, they're not that dangerous. But I sit in Jane Heller's seats, which are frightening, Next to the now, dugout. Yeah, right next to the dugout and right behind home plate. And it's really frightening because you worry about getting hit by something very hard. Well, this week is opening day week for baseball. Are you going to opening day at Yankee Stadium? I am. I'm going to. I'll see you there. Ah. And uh, I would like to go. It's kind of tradition to go. And I'm posting a picture on my Instagram of me and my baseball dress from many years ago Um Nicole Miller made us baseball dresses, so they're white sleeveless dresses with the red stitching, so it looks like we're it's, it's a stitched baseball hardball. But what team are you watching closely this year?
3: Um, I'm, I don't have a particular team. I do enjoy going to the stadium and I like going out city field. Um, I like the game, and the game is what's of interest to me.
0: right. And individual star players?
3: Yeah, there are a number of players. I mean, I, there's a player on the Yankees, John uh, Carlos Stanton, who played for me. In Miami, I have a particular fondness for him.
0: Oh, so how old is he now?
3: 31, perhaps. Oh, so he's 31? Still a baby. Well, he was even a younger <laughs> baby when we signed him to that right. massive contract that he
0: got. Right. It's pretty good to be in the, in the front row and, and watching those games and the excitement. Would you be able to spot talent in the art world um, or in baseball if you didn't have that view from the front row?
3: I think it's, it's something you accumulate over a period of time. Um, baseball players and artists are pretty similar. I mean, they, they both put their talents on the line, and neither of them is really stifled by criticism, but they focus on what they're doing. And the baseball players that I have watched, along with my scouts at the time I watched them, um, I had a pretty good idea who they were, but I didn't make final decisions. I made encouraging uh, encouragements along the way.
0: When did that start?
3: Trading players? Yeah. Uh, Way before Babe Ruth. Remember when he was traded from the Boston Red Sox to the Yankees? Absolutely.
0: That was a bad trade.
3: That was a bad trade (laughs) for Boston. Yes. (laughs) Great trade for New York. It was. But um, most of the time when we trade players, it's to improve the team. You have 25 players on a club and you want to make sure that they're all contributing. And so you need to um, watch every aspect of it. You know, you, you can have great pitching and if you don't have good and good infield, the pitchers don't matter. Yeah. You know, you need hitters, you need, you need all aspects of the game and you use the players to trade, to improve your club.
0: Well, when you bought Montreal, um, what did you pay for that team?
3: Um uh, at the time, somewhere around $125 million, but I didn't buy the whole team. I bought Controlling interest in the team to operate the team, and to again see if I like the the ownership at the major league level, which I which I did. I like the whole camaraderie with the players and with the industry. The industry's wonderful people, and um, I think that's due in part because they've had great leadership during the time I was there.
0: Oh, so your interest was only one hundred and twenty million.
3: My my interest was less than oh. that because I bought a percentage of it.
0: Oh, of that of that price well now valuation
3: was a yes I guess 120 or 140 million I mm-hmm. don't remember now
0: well how much is the Yankee team worth now
3: probably in excess of four billion
0: so what was it, TV is TV is that what did it
3: well it's all a, a function of revenues and TV is a main contributor to those mm-hmm. revenues
0: because the prices have gone up skyrocketed for any of the teams well what's the highest price paid for a baseball team ever
3: um I think at the moment the Dodgers probably hold that record at billion dollars
0: and who do you think is going to win the series this year what is what's the prognostication
3: well there are a lot of good clubs there i think the mets have a great opportunity i think houston does again i think the braves have improved themselves and the dodgers the dodgers always have a great club and they work hard at figuring out what they need to figure out
0: Now, did you ever toss the first pitch
3: i did it in spring training once you You know owners Owners are not the most beloved people. The fans, for the most part, want more. They have and their they own always, opinion, don't they? And they have their opinions, and they want more, and they want it now. And it, that's that's what makes the game so interesting.
0: Yeah, Well, it's it's. I think it's hap- that's happening in all sports. I mean, I I read you know I read the stories, the headlines, and the sports pages just to keep keep up with my grandson. So I try to be at least a little bit educated. But there's always disputes. There's always sales. There's always trades. So you, as a baseball player, you did not continue playing, but you continued your idea of ownership at one day.
3: Well, You you bought
0: the Marlins when?
3: um, There was a very complicated three-way trade when baseball wanted to move out of Montreal and hopefully move down to Washington one day. So my son David, who was the president of of our team, we orchestrated a three-way trade whereby we moved from Montreal to Miami, the man who owned the miami club Which wanted was called to own when, at the time the marlins the man who owned the marlins wanted to buy the club in in boston he insisted that it had to be boston although i pointed out he he wanted out of miami because they were not going to build a stadium for him he made the egregious mistake of saying to the leaders there if you don't build a stadium for me i'll build it myself you never say that right. and so he needed to move somewhere else and he decided he didn't want to go to California to buy the angels which were for sale, and uh, the year that he didn't go there they won the World Series but the next the next year he he had the opportunity to go to Boston and we made this three three way trade and um, I assumed control of the Marlins and it took us a few years to get a stadium built, which was a
0: main and a focus beautiful stadium I remember going there to see your new stadium it was just the most spectacular place
3: well it's a it was a a passion of mine because of my art history background to build something architecturally that would be s- spectacular. And
0: Who and, was the architect?
3: Um, uh, Populous. They, they were the, the architects for most ballparks. And um, I remember the day we got permission to go ahead with the stadium. I was in London and called the, called the architect and said, would you be able to talk now? We have permission where are you? He said, I'm in London. He came to the hotel, Claridge's Hotel, where I was staying at the time. And I made a little sketch on a napkin. He took the sketch, made a better drawing, and that became the stadium. He asked me at the time if I wanted to build a, a retro facility, because there's a lot of Art Deco in Miami. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, I think we need to look forward. And we built a very contemporary stadium.
0: It's really a beautiful building. building. Yeah, it's beautiful and then uh, i remember the new owners took out some of the art that you had installed well
3: that's a that's a sad story but they they we had commissioned the pop artist red grooms to do a big sculpture which was an interactive sculpture it jumped into action when people when players hit home runs and, and the home team won the game the fish jumped into the water water <laughs> splashed right. birds flew lights were lit up all and and the new owners just wanted to do their own things so they basically took it down and put it out in the weather so who knows how long it will last it was it was a it was a cause for some consternation on my part because I didn't think they had the right to destroy public art
0: yeah that's too bad they did because it was spectacular Martha Stewart here. As a devoted pet parent and culinary expert, I ensure my cats and dogs are fed the finest nutrition. My premium pet food features air-dried protein inclusion, whole fruits and vegetables, and never any fillers. Martha Stewart pet food formulas make it so easy to satisfy the dietary needs and taste preferences of your pets. Now all six delicious formulas are 50% off. And there's convenient home delivery on Chewy.com. No more lugging heavy bags and your pets will thrive on the optimal nutrition and great taste.
2: This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue's online university for working adults you know you're worth it we do too so don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu
1: during the right rug flooring hello summer sale you'll find savings throughout the store all backed by the right price guarantee including carpet with a lifetime stain warranty only 159 installed with pad That's right. 159 includes expert installation as soon as tomorrow. Visit rightrug.com, R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com to find a showroom near you or schedule a free in-home shopping appointment. Say hello to summer and save. Right Rug Flooring, right
0: here, right now. So you bought the Marlins and then you had big surprises along the way. You you found amazing players.
3: Well, in 2002, Was a year that I spent studying the club and looking at what we needed, and by the time 2003 came around, we had some pretty good pitchers on our club. At the time, I thought we needed a an established, well-established catcher, and I had my eyes focused on Pudge Rodriguez, who was not signed by anybody at the time, and we got in touch with his agent. Eventually, signed him because he was the one that could handle pitchers. Runners weren't going to steal bases, and Pudge was a leader, and he did a great job. In the end, my general manager was not happy because he thought he was washed up, This is why the Rangers didn't sign him, but I took that chance. And he played, I don't know, six, eight more years after us and was the only world championship he ever won.
0: When it, you won the World Series against the Yankees in 03
3: Yes, in Yankee Stadium. In Yankee Stadium. In
0: Yankee Stadium. How'd you feel?
3: I had mixed emotions. (laughs) You know, I grew up a Yankee fan. I used to go up there all the time. I remember when I was there, with eight years old, with my father, sitting in a in the stands behind a pole in the old Yankee Stadium, thinking that I had the best seat in in Yankee Stadium. And at the end of that game, the Yankees lost, and I went home crying. What was the score? Uh, I was five five four, I think. So it was close. Yeah, it was close and the Yankees had an opportunity to win it.
0: I don't remember if I was there that that year or not. I probably was.
3: 40, I think it was 1948 or 9 I went there with my father. Oh, boy. And I walked out of the stadium in tears, and my father said, Jeffrey, there'll be another game. Guess what? He was right.
0: Was he alive when you bought the the team, the Marlins?
3: No. No. so, So he
0: didn't get to see that game.
3: No, and he didn't get to see me win a championship in the minor leagues either.
0: Wow.
3: It was just toward the end of his life.
0: You have learned so many lessons, and you have imparted many of those lessons in your fabulous book. Uh, what made you write this book now from the front row?
3: Well, I guess I felt that I had an opportunity to impart a lot of relationships that I had, some stories that I have um, memories that are very interesting to read i mean i I was at the forefront of a lot in the art world and in the baseball world
0: yeah let's go let's get into the art a little bit because. Your ability to spot art, you had an innate ability to know what was good, what appealed to you, and uh, and to meet artists and to develop relationships with artists. Not very many people do that well. You've done it amazingly well. So tell us a little bit about the beginning.
3: I um, studied art history at Yale. And my parents had sent me up there to become a pre-med student. And after six months of zoology, biology, botany, and chemistry, I called him and said, there's no more pre-med on, this, on, the, on the horizon, that I wanted to do something else. And I was taking an art history course. You had to take a, one of the areas of concentration. It had to be a history course. And art history seemed interesting.
0: What period? Do you remember? The art history? Yeah.
3: It was the beginning art history course oh. I was taking. Oh, so art history And it was a course taught by the eminent art historian, Vincent Scully.
0: Oh, he's fantastic. Yeah, written I, many books,
3: many books, and and a great favorite of mine, and we had a wonderful relationship. And he encouraged me, and he kept encouraging me all the way till the till the end of his life. When I then had the opportunity to return the favor and bring him to spring training and bring him to opening day, uh, because he was living in Miami at that oh, time. How great, and we had a lot of fun. I studied the art history all through college, and by the time I was ready what to what was leave, your
0: favorite period? Modern art. Did you learn Greek and Roman and Yeah, we had to take those courses, yeah.
3: those courses. I mean, you, you don't get to the modern without understanding what some of the Greek and Roman no. were doing because everything builds on itself. And came time to, for graduation. My parents came up to school and showed me an article in a newspaper that Sears Roebuck and Company was going into the art business. They were opening stores all over the country. What year was that? 1962. Uh, I don't when I I graduated, remember that. It's funny. Major, major growth of the company all over the country. And they were looking to bring in new clientele. And so the art was the vehicle for them to do that so that they were not just known in all these new cities where they were building as a place where you can buy furniture and a refrigerator.
0: Well, they were, they, to me, Sears Roebuck, I always loved that company. And I thought they just missed the boat by, they were the first, they were the first, that catalog was, I poured over that Sears catalog that big fat catalog that they oh had. I know and they were really the first Amazon and they could have been the Amazon if they had believed in the internet but by the time by the time the internet became a powerhouse Arthur Martinez was the CEO of Sears and he didn't quite get he didn't get quite get you know no stores you buy from the pages of your catalog which is online they didn't get it and uh, and Jeff Bezos got it really big. And do you remember all those, the, all that happening? I mean, it was just. I remember. The,
3: I remember the catalogs. Oh yeah. I even did the first art catalog. So, and so what did sold. you sell in it? Well, we sold lithographs and etchings. Oh. Uh, I remember commissioning Salvador Dali to do a painting and three hundred lithographs. And what
0: did you pay him?
3: I'm ashamed to say we paid him twenty five thousand hmm. dollars for a painting, which I felt was worth the twenty five thousand. And the 300 lithographs that we sold for $400 a piece quickly. Mm. And Sears hired Vincent Price, the actor, to be the person whose collection this was in the store. And my dad suggested I get in touch with Price, which I did. We eventually met, and I became the youngest buyer in Sears history. And it was a great experience because I got to meet all the artists. It was a time when you could call them and see them, and end of my junior year. My parents wanted to know what I was doing for spring vacation. Was I going to Fort Lauderdale? And I said, no, I'm going to go to England if you'll buy me an airline ticket. I want to meet Henry Moore. And I had you know, discovered, in my way, Henry Moore at, at college. So I went to visit with him. And at the time, I guess I was the youngest person ever to walk in his studio. Mm. And we, we hit it off, and we became very close. Oh,
0: I love his sculpture. And uh, did you ever go to his foundry in Italy?
3: I was everywhere he worked. Even to even the uh, the quarries in in um, Pietrasanta where he worked during the summer doing his carvings, Yeah,
0: incredible. And then you became dealers for these artists.
3: Well, I had my own personal relationships with them, and eventually opened my own business and started building collections slowly. And I dealt with, you know, collectors. The Chrysler family had a collection, and. Walter Chrysler was building a museum in um, Norfolk, Virginia, oh. where he was, where his wife's family was from, and Norton Simon, the industrialist who lived in California, I spent a lot of time seeing him, and I talk about him in the book. And very interesting people, these these giants.
0: Did you have to educate them, or were they already educated? These great well collectors.
3: Both ways it went. I mean, Norton Simon called me one night and said. I hear you're a young dealer and you know something about sculpture and paintings. I was probably 28 at the time. And we spoke that night for five hours on the phone. Mm. And we became close and I helped him buy lots of things that he has in his museum, including a big Henry Moore sculpture, which I bought in England and brought over to the United States on a ship, traveled his luggage. <laughs> <laughs> and I tried to encourage him to come and see it.
0: How many tons was that one?
3: <laughs> uh, three. Yeah. <laughs>
0: They're very big, those Henry Moores. Martha Stewart here. As a devoted pet parent and culinary expert, I ensure my cats and dogs are fed the finest nutrition. My premium pet food features air-dried protein inclusion, whole fruits and vegetables, and never any fillers. Martha Stewart Pet Food Formulas make it so easy to satisfy the dietary needs and taste preferences of your pets. Now all six delicious formulas are 50% off. And there's convenient home delivery on Chewy.com. No more lugging heavy bags and your pets will thrive on the optimal nutrition and great
2: taste. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global.
0: You have so many stories in the book. What's something that you wish you had never sold?
3: One of them is with Norton Simon. I mean, I had this great Henry Moore sculpture, which I brought over, and I thought he might be the perfect client for it. And Norton didn't respond. You know, three months, four months went by, and he called me one day on a Friday afternoon. And you
0: had laid out the money already.
3: Oh, I had bought it. I, I I never bought for anybody specifically. I bought for myself and realizing that eventually it could be placed. He called me on a Friday afternoon and said, I'm in New York. I want to see the sculpture. I wow. said, it's in a warehouse. <laughs> They're closed on Saturdays. Find a way. I found a way, and he bought the sculpture.
0: Wow. He saw it and loved it. Yeah. Um, any paintings that, that you regret? The woulda, coulda, should shouldas?
3: Well, I, I had a number of very important surrealist paintings in the mid-'70s that— um, That was the time when the Japanese were really pursuing art and buying art. And I had Miro's, one of his greatest paintings of a dancer listening to music in a Gothic cathedral, a huge upright painting. Mm. And I had a Tangi Eve Tangi painting that had been purchased by the collector I bought it from in Pittsburgh, which was sent by the artist to the Carnegie exhibition in 1938. And, Artists sent their masterpieces to show off their work. And I eventually bought those pictures and I had them. I was t- tempted not to sell them, but the temptation from the, from the buyers um, encouraged me to <laughs> right. sell them. And I'd love to have them back. But today. that's it's, what
0: being a dealer is. Right? Well, you
3: can't keep everything, right? you know, no matter what business you're in.
0: And what have you kept for yourself? What's, what's in your collection?
3: Pablo Picasso. First Picasso I ever bought. You kept. I kept. Yeah. And I have a lot of Henry Moore sculptures. At one time, I had um, 60 or 70 sculptures of Henry's. Wow. And a colleague of mine came to my home, and he said to me, what are you doing with all these sculptures? Sell half of them and buy some other artists. And I thought about it, and I said, that makes more sense than what I'm doing. I loved Henry's work, and I loved collecting them.
0: Well, Gordon Bunshaft was a big Henry Moore fan. Yes, and I bought I bought Gordon Bunshaft's little house in East Hampton. Oh, that beautiful house on Georgia Pond. And when I bought it, the Museum of Modern Art owned it, and uh, Gordon had left it to the museum. And in the garden was a beautiful Henry Moore. There were oh gosh, there were about five really important sculptures in the garden, and the, but the museum was taking them all. And Moonbird was in the garden. And, uh, and they left all the frames, all those very heavy cast iron frames and steel frames and platforms. They left all of that in the garden for me, nothing on them, just the platforms, the plinths. So I got to know what Gordon had liked because he was placing those same kinds of sculptures in the buildings he was building in New York city. He did one chase Manhattan Plaza. He did the lever house. And lots, all, of
3: Dubuffet, oh, yeah, lots of Dubuffet.
0: Oh, yeah, lots of buffet. It was a really interesting experience for me to buy uh, a house like that. And and I always thought, gosh, he must not like his wife very much because the kitchen on Georgia Pond had a wall. It had no windows. He had his wife cooking in a kitchen with no windows facing the view. And the house was just a basic, like a shoebox of travertine left over from probably the Chase Manhattan Plaza because that was a travertine-clad building. And he built it out of concrete and travertine and cinder blocks. It was beautiful. Uh, my daughter sold that, but um, but it was uh, it was a special place. But I love the sculptures in the garden, and I've I've always loved sculptures ever ever since I went to that Museum of Modern Art garden and loved the beautiful sculptures in that garden. But uh, do you have any uh, Sarahs?
3: Sarah, no, I uh, don't have any Sarah. Yeah, no. I have uh, Marino Marini and Giacomo Manzù and. Cesar and Botero and
0: oh, the Robert,
3: Robert Indiana. I
0: had dinner with Botero one night. He was interesting. He was, uh, My I have a lot of art history background, which, uh, because my husband was the publisher of Abrams art books.
3: Uh, so Abrams books,
0: Yeah, you know, all those early books. And Andy was the president of Abrams and he worked with Harry and, uh, and he published all those big books. And remember the Lawrence Gowing book? Um, on the on the Louvre, those those great big books that Abrams used to do. So I learned a lot about art. Unfortunately, I didn't buy art like you were buying art. I wish I had because I could have really. I loved so much of it, and it was so. And I'm jealous of people like you who have developed uh, their, their taste into a business. You have a lot of ideas for people who, in, and in your book you impart those, those. I call them the tenets of business. So talk about those because you have a whole list of things that that you advise people in business to do?
3: Well, I think, I think the most, one of the most important things that I've always believed in was you have to take risks. Um, for me, it was a risk and a chance that I took when I, at age 19, got on an airplane, and went to England knowing nobody to visit an artist. And I, I think if you're not willing to take risks, there's no rewards.
0: Did you read Edith Wharton's New York stories? Did you read that one no, story? No. Oh, there's a story I'm going to send to you about a young man who... Uh, is the scion of a big New York, very wealthy New York family, and he is given by his father ten thousand dollars to go to Europe to buy his art collection. And at the time, uh, ten thousand dollars was like like early ni- early twentieth century, I think. Ten thousand dollars was a lot of money, and he went to England, and he then went to Italy, and he came back with a collection that uh, was probably what you would have bought if you were in his position. He brought a Mantegna. Nobody had ever heard of him. He bought some uh, Caravaggios. Old Masters. Nobody had heard of any of these guys. When he came back, Hmm. his father looked at the collection and disowned him. He said, you wasted my money on that stuff? And he disowned the boy. And the boy opened a little dinky museum in the village of New York, in the West Village. And people would come and pay a few cents to see the art and then of course all everything he had bought turned out to be a priceless masterpiece so he had the taste he didn't have the belief of his father or and no and his and his friends didn't believe what he was up to but it's a fabulous story you have to read it it's really okay. great but uh but you had that you had that eye
3: well i think i developed that eye from so an you, early age so you
0: took you took risks yes okay
3: and i never believed calculated that. risks yes yeah
0: as I, I always tell people: take a risk, but don't take a chance.
3: And as part of taking risks, you have to know that a fear of failure is never an option.
0: It's no fear.
3: The, the one thing that can be a real detriment in any business transaction, whether you're buying a a player, baseball player, or a great work of art, is hesitation. If you hesitate, you're going to be lost. I did that a few times, but I learned quickly that a hesitation is a detriment that I don't want to live with. Yeah. And so right. I've always believed that you have to do it right or don't do it at all. That was something that I learned from my father. Don't get started on something you can't complete. And if you're going to complete it in a half-baked way, don't do it. Right. And while you're doing it, um, I learned along the way that quality was always more important than quantity. I always pursued a single great player rather than four players that filled various spots because that one player I always felt could add more to the team than the two or three that we needed, but we'd find them elsewhere you gotta you have to pursue the quality. I also have lived by the credo that you have to surround yourself with good people. I had great executives, and I in my baseball career towards the last few years after we opened the stadium, I decided to pursue some really top executives, and it took me a few years to. Put them all together, and we had a really good operating team until the new ownership came in and fired them all in the first week. I heard that. <laughs> well, they didn't even give them a chance, and, and we- they had to pay their salaries for the lengths of those contracts. That mm-hmm. I never quite understood why you would do that. One of the things that I have found along the way, and that's the way I'm doing this for close to six decades now, is you have to expect the unexpected. Things come your way that you have no idea were going to come your way. But you have to be prepared for it. And I.
0: Opportunity as well as.
3: Both sides of the coin. Failure, and yeah. Good, good things and bad things. But you have to expect that those kind of things are going to happen. I always bought and traded, whether I was trading pictures, which you could do at one time, trade works of art, which I did. I always felt that I wanted to be doing the deal that I wanted to do, not what others wanted me to do. In other words, if somebody had something. And they felt that was great. If I wanted to do it too, then it worked. But if that was not going to be the case, you're going to end up making a, a poor decision that you're going to regret. You have to have a bit of a, 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 a thick skin to work in both those worlds. It's not that I have it. I developed it along the way and realized that that's the only way to get to the bottom line and to the end successfully. You need a lot of humility too. And that doesn't always come easily to a lot of people. I don't know if it came easily or not to me, but it seems to have worked for me.
0: Those are valuable lessons and valuable, valuable rules for for uh, running a business and just in well. There's living. there's
3: there's one more which oh, I okay. find find very curious, which is you have to use your eyes. Um, you have to trust your eyes and use your eyes. I was at a an exhibition in London recently with my wife, and she she had me she had encouraged me to listen to David Hockney. And one of the things he said just really struck up a note, and I remember it now, that most people don't know how to use their eyes. The only thing they use their eyes for, said David, was to see the street and the road in front of them,
0: but they're not looking up and around them. And that's important. I'm always looking up. So you and I agree on this list a lot. I I like your list.
3: And you know what else? Sometimes the best deals are the deals you don't do, like not buying a particular painting, And realizing later that that picture really wasn't as good as it could have been, that there are better works. I always strive for the best and not having enough information about that artist meant that I was not striving for the best. Not ready for it. Yeah. yeah. Not ready for it. And that was a good deal not to have done what I didn't do.
0: No, things, things happen to you too in life. Uh, I mean, I love that you say, go for it. And really, if you believe in it, uh, act, act quickly. And, in parts of my life i just lo- I lost that ability to act quickly and it's just i just hesitated and hesitation as as you said is just a killer a killer hesitating is really bad so uh, what's next what else are you going to do you have so much energy and so uh many good ideas and do you have a shop where you sell your art no I'm a
3: private dealer okay i'm in the I'm in the phone book right but I do it privately
0: and um, do you have one piece of art that you would never give up?
3: Yeah, many years ago, I bought a, a study for the famous painting of Matisse called The Dance. And I didn't n- realize it, but I was thumbing through the Alfred Barr book. The Alfred, Alfred Barr was the director of MoMA. Oh, yes. And he wrote a book about Matisse. And I was reading through the book, and on one page, in a postage-sized reproduction, there's the little work that I bought. It's so elegant and so much movement and it's, and it's the embodiment of Matisse. So I, I think I would never part with that.
0: Oh, nice. And that you, you can continually discover things about it, right? All the time. Yeah. Oh, great. Well, you can enjoy more of Jeffrey's stories in his new book from the front row reflections of a major league baseball owner and modern art dealer. Be sure to pick it up wherever you like to get your books and, Jeffrey um, that we could talk forever I think your stories are fascinating and your life has been an amazing amazing journey and uh, which continues every single day take care of your family they're lovely I got to meet some of them at the the talk you did the other night uh at uh, at, at Christie's yeah and it was a beautiful night that was a really a pleasure uh, and a great celebration for for this book and uh keep going
3: thanks Martha thank thanks you. very much thank you
0: Martha Stewart here. As a devoted pet parent and culinary expert, I ensure my cats and dogs are fed the finest nutrition. My premium pet food features air-dried protein inclusion, whole fruits and vegetables, and never any fillers. Martha Stewart Pet Food Formulas make it so easy to satisfy the dietary needs and taste preferences of your pets. Now all six delicious formulas are 50% off. And there's convenient home delivery on Chewy.com. No more lugging heavy bags and your pets will thrive on the optimal nutrition and
2: great taste.